days have come and gone, and children start school this week, and there's rejoicing among mothers everywhere in Abu Dhabi, I'm sure. Now, some of you I know have just moved here, and so you probably have your head still spinning from trying to find accommodation and a vehicle and learn what Dubizzle is and figure out what the pink shops are. And as, as you get yourself situated, whatever your situation might be, how you find yourself this morning as we gather in the name of Jesus, it's wherever you're at. What we're here for, for exactly one purpose, is to see God. That's what our hearts yearn for the most. Our hearts have a God-made desire to see Him, to see even just a glimpse of His indescribable beauty and glory and holiness. And so as a faith family, what we want not just today, but every single Friday morning in the Emmers Park Zoo, is that you would see God. And that you would then respond to what you see in Him revealed in song and in word and through the preaching, that you would then respond to what you see in Him with lives of worship. That's why we're here. And this morning we are continuing and actually finishing our teaching series, we've been this summer in a journey through the Psalms. A lot of you weren't here for us, you're catching tail end, but whatever it's worth, all the sermons that are ever preached are on our website if you missed one. But this summer we've been in a journey through the Psalms. Our aim throughout this series has been to have our souls uplifted, name of the series, that our souls would be full of joy and full of gladness. So this morning, as we conclude this series, we're going to talk about our emotions. This whole summer, we've been talking about cultivating emotions that are godly. And we've talked about overcoming things like anger and, and loneliness and anxiety. You see, God has given us emotions, and so that's a good thing. God made us to feel, and the reason why He did is so that we can express joy and delight in Him. And so he did not make us robots. He made us human with emotions, with feelings. And this is good because God himself feels and he made us to have his image to also feel. And so he made us to express joy and gladness in him. And so the problem is not our emotions. The problem is sin and how sin corrupts everything, including our emotions. So all of us, if we're honest, are a truly broken people. Every one of us is desperate for Jesus and for Him through the power of His Spirit to heal us, to transform us, to conform our character, including our emotions, to the image of Christ. And so today, as, as we continue and then again conclude this series on emotions, looking at Psalm 92. We looked at Psalms all summer, so today we'll be finishing. We're looking at Psalm 92, and we're... We're meditating on having a glad heart because having a glad heart is what will enable you to overcome these negative emotions that do not display God's glory. So Psalm 92, let's read that together. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, 
to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. To the music of the lute and the harp and to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in the old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. And there is no unrighteousness in him. Amazing psalm. This poem is beautiful. Let's identify the primary truth. At ECC Off Island, week in, week out, we expect you to hear. We yearn and we plan for you to hear what we call expositional or expository sermons, where the main idea of the text is the main idea of the sermon. And so we, we have a conviction that that is the way that you can more effectively understand what God's Word is saying and how it then applies to our lives to live more faithfully for Jesus. And so we always want to identify what is the primary truth in this text and then look at it and see how God wants to change us through it. And so the main idea, the primary truth in this text is that God created us to enjoy Him forever. This is, this is what Psalm 92 is describing. All 15 verses in this poem are, are screaming clearly that God has created us to enjoy Him forever. So this poem here is revealing that God is glorious and He wants us to see that glory and to enjoy Him and then to live in a way that is then reflecting that glory. Because we can't make God glorious to glorify God. He already is glorious, but we recognize it and then we reflect it like a mirror. And that's how we glorify Him. And so this text actually asks three questions and then it answers them about enjoying God. So since the primary truth here describing is that God made us to enjoy Him, and so it then asks three questions, but then it answers them. And so the first question, it's on the screen to be taking notes. So the first question asked in this text is why? Why should I enjoy God? And so it it begins with the first five verses in this movement, this first stanza, on describing why should we, why should I or you enjoy God? Well, the title of this psalm is very helpful, as it is with any psalm, as we've been talking about all summer. when, When there is a title, a header, it helps us know the historical context of that psalm. Very helpful. And so what we see here with this psalm, it says, it's, of course, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. So what is the connection between the main idea that this text is revealing that we're made to enjoy God and, and the Sabbath? 
So how is joy and the Sabbath connected? Maybe some of you think, well, the Sabbath was, was drudgery and duty and all these rules. And so how, what's the connection with joy and the Sabbath? Well, let's read about that in Exodus chapter 20. This is where God's people were at Mount Sinai and God was revealing the covenant of how they were to be his people, liberated from slavery in Egypt, and now God is entering into a relationship with them. And these ten words, these ten commandments, are what is defining the relationship. And here's what it says in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord for your God. On it you shall not do any work, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. So what we're seeing here is that God commanded, this is the fourth commandment, for them to observe the Sabbath. And there's a lot that could be said, but I want to keep it somewhat condensed because I want to look at Psalm 92. There could be a whole sermon on just the Sabbath. But just three thoughts on what we see here on how God told people to observe the Sabbath. One, he told them to remember. He says, remember the Sabbath. And so he's saying, don't forget to take your daily day of rest. Second, he says, keep it holy. And so God didn't say, don't rest and just stay in bed all day. Don't, don't be on, you know, watching TV all day. That's not the Sabbath. And so keeping the Sabbath was not just the absence of work. It was taking a rest from work to keep it holy, to have your thoughts, your life truly engaged on God. And so to do nothing, to just lay around was not keeping the Sabbath. It was to keep it holy, to focus on a holy God. And third, he says, rest every seventh day. So he's telling them that there's this pattern. God is creating a, a, a rhythm of what our days and how our lives should be. He says, work six days and then take one to rest, to focus on me, to keep it holy. And so God, he displayed his glory by creating the entire universe I mean, if you think about our galaxy, it's absolutely enormous. And to think that we're just in one galaxy out of billions of galaxies in this in- incredibly enormous, vast universe, and God created it by just speaking. And then he sustains it by the power of his word. It's mind-boggling. And so God is displaying his glory and creating. He took six days, he created everything, and then he took one day on the seventh, and God rested. And so God is basically, he's saying to his people, okay, I made you to enjoy my glory. So every seventh day, stop your labor and focus on me. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses is preaching, much like you're experiencing right now. He's preaching to God's people when they're, they're getting close, entering the promised land. And so he's preaching to them. And in, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15, Moses is reiterating this covenant. Again, Deuteronomy 5, 15, he says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Listen, therefore... 
the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. Very important. The Sabbath is a reminder that God is the source of creation. God made everything and then he rested. But we also see in Deuteronomy that the Sabbath is is a reminder that God is also the source of our salvation. He says, I brought you out of slavery, therefore keep the Sabbath. And so the Sabbath points to, reminds us of God's glory in creation, but also points to God's glory in salvation. God's two primary works. And so what is God actively doing? He creates and he redeems. And both of these, the Sabbath is a reminder for us who know Jesus. It reminds us and it shows the world that when we take a holy day once a week to rest, we're saying we have a God in heaven. He is all-powerful. He is glorious. And he is also our Savior. We didn't make ourselves We can't sustain ourselves. We can't save ourselves. It's all about God. And we take this one day to focus on him together. Now, think of this in terms of an ancient Israelite. They had to work every single day in the hot sun just to survive. And now there's a God that saves them, enters into a relationship with them, and now their God says, hey, don't work so much. You work too hard. And God says, take one day a week and rest. Be refreshed. Focus on me. Have your soul refreshed by enjoying me. God says, I promise. I'm faithful. I'm going to meet your need if you just work six days. You don't have to work all seven. Only work six. And trust me. I'll provide for you. I'm good. You belong to me. I paid the price to liberate you from slavery, so just trust me that six days is enough. Take that seventh and rest. Focus on me. And so the Sabbath, it points to God's grace. The Sabbath was a gift. And so God's purpose for the Sabbath, if you think about it, was to experience joy to take delight in the Lord. And so what you see here is Jesus, who calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath, king over the Sabbath. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give your souls rest. Jesus fulfilled everything that the Old Testament Sabbath was designed to point to and to be. Jesus embodies it, and so now we have rest, and now we can enjoy God, and we can display his glory to a watching world because of Christ. Through Christ, we experience God's grace. And so this rest that we have in Christ is what the Sabbath was all pointing to and fulfilled in now for us that know and enjoy Jesus. And so the Sabbath is powerful. And so every single Friday morning, I know we don't gather on the Saturday, we gather on the Friday, but all it said in Exodus 20 is every seventh day rest. We do on a Friday. Maybe it's a little bit different, but we are accomplishing the heart of what God is revealing by gathering together to be refreshed, to focus on Jesus. And to do it because he made it possible and we find rest in him. 
And so what happens a Friday morning in Embers Park Zoo matters. It's eternal. And don't overlook it. Don't underestimate it. Gathering with God's people in the name of Jesus to hear his word, to be fueled to continue living for him matters. So the Sabbath was about enjoying God. And so that's why that's the point of the psalm. That's why that's the title. So all of that to help you understand the context of this psalm. So back to the question that the first five verses are addressing. So why should I? Why should I enjoy God? And by the way, I mean that very honestly. I don't mean that in a rhetorical way. For some of you, this is a new experience. Now, I don't mean meeting in a zoo. Now, that is, for some of you, a very new experience, gathering to worship Jesus in a zoo. Yes, that's new. I've been here for two years. I still don't get over it. It still baffles my mind that we actually gather in a zoo. Praise be to God. But I'm not, I'm not even talking about the zoo being a new experience. For some of you, this whole idea of following Jesus is new. This is a new concept. And you've never really considered it. And maybe you even have a religious background. Maybe you have a church background from your home country, from quote-unquote Christian nations all over this planet that really aren't that Christian. And yet there's, there's the veneer, there's the tradition, and yet there are millions in these quote-unquote Christian nations that have no idea who Jesus is and are not following him and don't have his spirit. And you come here, and maybe now you're, you're seeking and this is some, some new things for you to consider. Enjoying Jesus. We do not proclaim religion. I don't have a list of do's and don'ts for you to do. It's not like that. As this church that is firmly based on, rooted on, loves God's word, what we want for you most, our deepest desire is not to give you religion but to let you see God and to enjoy His Son, Jesus Christ, through His Spirit that will live in you if you will turn to Him. You see, Jesus is the source of all comfort and all approval and all joy. But the question is for us this morning is, why should we enjoy God? I mean, I could ask you, what do you find most value in? And you would have to come to a conclusion in your mind on what I value the most is, and you fill in the blank. And I would say it ought to be Jesus. But still, what does this psalm tell us on why should you enjoy Jesus? The first three verses begin to answer the question. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. So what we're seeing here is a picture. This is a picture of us, of of what it looks like to enjoy God. And note that there are some action words, some verbs here. The first one says, give thanks. And so we, we are commanded to do this, give thanks, take this action, to continually say thank you, to express gratitude to God. And then it says, sing praises, another action word, a command there. We must sing of the glories of God. We must sing his praises. I love how John Piper describes this. He says, Christ does not exist in order to make much of us. We exist in order to enjoy making much of him. 
We exist to praise God. That's why he made us. And then he gives the next action where he says to declare. Again, an imperative. Do this. We declare. We must reveal or make known the glory of God to others. And so we're, we're told here, he says, it is good to give thanks. It's good to declare, to sing praises. So all of these three words have an object. They're all directed. They're not general. It's not like uh, I give thanks, people who don't even know or love Jesus, and they give thanks to who? Like to the air? To what? Well, we give thanks to God. It's directed towards Him. We sing praises to God. We declare about God. And so declare means to make known. So we reveal who God is by our lives. And it says that it is good. It is good for us to do this. And so praising God and giving thanks to Him is good. Every time, and we have to understand this, every time that we sin, at the root of it is a lack of gratitude. And so ingratitude is at the heart of sin. You see, God's a creator, I'm the created. And so because he made everything, everything I have, I owe to him. Everything good that I enjoy, I owe to God. I I have nothing good if not for God being good to me. I I can't create anything. He sustains me, and so he deserves all the thanksgiving. And so whenever I sin, what it's showing is at my heart a lack of thankfulness to God. And so the key to really being thankful is to be content. This is very important. We must be content with who we are, what we look like, where we work, what our income level is, our nationality, everything about who we are, we have to be content. And so when I lack contentment, I have either forgotten that God is God, or I'm refusing to submit to him. And so being content shows that I value God. I'm thankful for who I am, what I have. And being content will allow me to give him praise and to give him thanksgiving. And so we need to be thankful and to truly love him. So verse 2 says when. When should we declare that he is good? It says in the morning and by night. And so perpetual. We're called in the morning and in the evening all the time. So those of us that know God have experienced his mercy, we're called to constantly, morning, daytime, everything in between, we are called perpetually to be praising him and to be giving Thanks. And so praise, by the way, is just a natural overflow. We praise what we enjoy. We talk about the things that we enjoy, just like this time of year. If, if you follow the European Premier Soccer, or I'm sorry, Football League, so Premier, I can't even say it properly, but if you follow football in Europe, it started here recently. And, and you'll hear guys talking about it, how they're so excited to, to watch guys running around games that end 1-0. I don't understand why people would watch that, but I'm American. What do I know? But people like that, and they get excited, and they talk about it. Americans, this time of year, you, you'll hear guys talking about they're so excited about American football that starts like this weekend if you follow the universities and, and one week the, the professional. So you hear all of these guys in the U.S. talking about American football, and they're so excited, and then they're talking about it. And you'll hear women talking about things like Pinterest and all these pins that they've found, 
and my wife set up Pinterest with my email. So every time that someone repins one of her pins, I get it on my email. And I'm like, I don't care about how many people are following her or repinning her pins, but it's every day. She has like hundreds of followers. And women that talk about Pinterest is because they enjoy it. They like it. They think it's great. Pinning, I don't even know why you would do that, but women do, and they talk about it. We talk about what we enjoy. We praise what we love. If you don't praise your wife, husbands, if you don't praise your wife, look in the mirror. Ask God to to show you why, why you don't praise her. Because we naturally praise what we love, what we value. Wives, you should praise your husbands. I hate it, and I hear far too often women ripping men. Wives that don't speak highly of their husbands. And jokes like, oh, you get men together, and the the IQ goes down, and all of these, these jokes that you hear women say. And it's funny, we laugh, but deep inside, it's, it's not helpful. It's not. We praise what we love. We all do. God made us to. And God made us to praise Him, to speak well of Him, to make much of Him. And so what dominates your thinking and what dominates your words and how do you speak about others and most importantly, how do you speak about Christ? Because we ought to be day and night perpetually giving Him thanks and singing Him praises and declaring, making note how amazing and glorious and how good He's been to us. And so often we are just caught in the ruts of life and we praise things that quite honestly don't matter. Because those things have thrilled us more than Jesus. So why should we praise Him? Why should we enjoy God, verses 1 and 2 says that He is the Lord. This is His personal name. His personal name. He wants to be near to you, to know you, for you to know Him. And He says that He's most high. He's the highest. There's nothing and no one above Him. He's all-powerful and majestic. He, He can overcome anything because He is God. He's most high. And it says that He has steadfast love. Steadfast, He's kind. His loving kindness is merciful to us. And His love will not forsake you because His steadfast love says that He is faithfulness. That He is faithful, the text tells us in verse 2. God is for you. He won't abandon you. He's for you. He's faithful. He's so glorious. And when we, when we recognize that He is the Lord most high, steadfast, and He's faithful, then we will more naturally respond with praising Him. But when we don't recognize it, when we don't see that He is most high, and He is steadfast, and that He loves you, and that He's faithful, and that He's amazing, and that He's enormous, He's glorious, when we don't see it, when we see more glory in other things, then we won't praise Him in the day and in the night. We won't. We'll praise something. We, all of us praise. That isn't the question. The question is what do you praise? Verse 4 
says, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work, at your works of your hands. I sing for joy. He says, God makes me glad. He makes my heart sing for joy. So what makes your heart sing for joy? It says here, it ought to be by your work, God's work, at the work of your hands, I sing for joy. When we see God at work, when we see that He is creator and He is redeemer. And so God's work in creation and in redemption, when we see that and we internalize it, what happens is the Spirit begins to change our hearts. And we focus on these incredible, glorious truths. We sing. Our hearts respond with praising and singing to God. We respond with gladness, it says in verse 4. We have glad hearts. So the more time that you spend pondering the glory of Jesus, saving you from your sin, when you focus on your guilt before God and God's glory as revealed on the cross where He paid for your sins, when you, when you meditate on these truths every day, and you're reading His Word and you're praying, what happens is the inside of you begins to bubble over and then praise begins to just pour out. The opposite is also true. When all we do is focus on, meditate on things that we don't have or focus on the person that you're trying to change and manipulate and they're not cooperating with you. When you focus on everything that you wish would happen, that God clearly hasn't given you or doesn't believe that you need, but you want it. When we focus on, on all the negative things and not on Jesus, and all of a sudden, praise begins to shrink back. And you'll begin to praise things that don't reflect God's glory. Gladness is a natural response to recognizing God's glory. Verse 5 tells us, How great are your works. There's a theme again. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. We're never going to fully comprehend God. You can learn and learn and learn, and there's more because God is infinite. But what we do know, what we have seen, should amaze us. We should just be absolutely just standing amazed at what we do see. You're so profound. You're so deep. You're very deep, he says. We should be just captivated by how deep he is and be blown away by how stunning God is. And when we do that, our hearts will be turned. So, question. Why should I enjoy God? Well, these five verses are answering the question. They're on your notes. Why? Because God alone is glorious enough to satisfy your soul. Why, Why should you enjoy God? Because God alone is is all glorious. He alone is enough to satisfy you. Everything else will fall short and will not satisfy your soul. So then the next stanza, the next few verses, verses 6 through 9, ask a second question. Okay, so that's why I should, because God alone can satisfy me, because he alone is all glorious, as we just read in this text. The second question is, what if I refuse? What if I don't want to? What if I refuse to enjoy God? What if I enjoy other things instead? So what? It's, what's it to God if I don't want to enjoy Him? What if I, if I want to enjoy other things and I have my own free will? I can enjoy whatever I want to enjoy. What if I refuse to enjoy God? Verses 6 through 9 says, The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, 
they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. When we refuse to truly enjoy God, what happens? These verses describe. It describes, it says first that it's stupid. Can you say that in church? Yes, we're in a zoo, it's okay. It's in the Bible. It says stupid. The word there means brutish or lacking sense. It makes no sense to refuse to enjoy God. And then it says fool. So it's arrogant. This is describing people that see the truth. They see the facts. It's clear. It's obvious. There's no doubt. And yet they reject it. This is fool here is arrogant. It's saying you see what's so obvious. It's right in front of you. And then you say no. I see it. I choose not to believe it. It's foolish. Just foolish. And he says it's wicked as well. He, he calls people wicked. He says it's evil to not delight in God. And he's describing here that it's living for temporal things. He says that they sprout like grass. Those that are evil, they sprout quickly. And it says that it seems like everything is going so well for them. They're, they're flourishing. It says they're sprouting. They seem so green. Life seems so great for those people. And, and you're trying to follow Jesus. And you're trying to honestly live a life for him. And you see other people that are not. They live for themselves and very selfish and immoral. And their life looks better than yours. And you think, man, I wish I could have lived that life and then come to Jesus later. And, and enjoy both worlds and enjoy all the evil. It seems so enticing. It's not. It's not. It says, yeah, it looks, yeah, they sprout like green grass. It looks good. It looks like enjoying the things of this world and not enjoying God seems to be helpful, seems to be good, but it says that it leads to destruction. That joy won't last. Joy in all of those other things the world has to offer us, it's not lasting. Not eternal. It leads to destruction. To refusing to gladly submit to God means next that you're an enemy of God, it says. It says you're enemies of God. You have two options. Either you're loyal to God or you're not. That's it. There's no third option. You're loyal to God, the kingdom of Jesus, or you're loyal to Satan, who is currently the God of this world. His kingdom will not last. It will be destroyed. The head of the serpent will be crushed by Jesus. He'll be cast in the lake of fire. It's going to happen. We have faith. We know it's going to. I've read the end of the book. I know how it ends. But right now, Satan still has blinded people. And either you're in the kingdom of darkness or a kingdom of light. Those are the two options. And so those who are not enjoying God, those who don't gladly submit to him, it says are enemies of God. And he calls them evildoers as well. He says evildoers. I mean, this is some strong language. And he says evildoers will be scattered. Talking about being separated from God. And so to be scattered here means that you're, you're, you're not with God. You're set apart. You're, you're scattered. You're separated from God. Far from him. And the last thing it says in verse 9 that it leads to death. They will perish. So in the end, 
choosing to not gladly follow Jesus, gladly submit to God, leads to perishing to death. And so this text is just screaming, look at the evidence. God is a creator. God is a redeemer. Look at his works. He's saying, this is so obvious. God is clearly revealing that God is real and that he is glorious and that he deserves our loyalty, our affections. He deserves it because he is God. And when we say no and we reject it and we choose to find joy in the other things and not trust in God, in light of this overwhelming evidence, the end is death and separation from God. God is the source of everlasting joy. He is. He is the source of joy. So again, many of this text is that God created us to enjoy Him forever. So when I say that all of us seek joy, understand that joy is not the absence of sadness. Hear me. Joy is not the absence of sadness. It's not like God takes away your sadness and leaves you empty. He doesn't do that. He replaces it with joy. And so joy is this pervasive sense of well-being, the sense of pleasure and of delight. And every one of us seeks pleasure. Every one of us seeks joy. God made us to seek joy. He made us to seek joy in Him. We can look elsewhere. Why do you think there are women that are not married, that so desire to be married, that they'll enter into relationships with men, Men that are already married with someone else. And there they are pursuing this married guy. Or why, why would an unmarried woman stay in a relationship where she's being abused? Where it's a destructive and horribly unhealthy relationship. I see it all the time. And women stay in these relationships. And I, I don't understand, except I do know this about human nature. Women that are in that situation, there's a hole. There's a hole inside of them. And they're looking to this man to fill it. They're trying to find joy. They're trying to find acceptance and meaning and approval. Looking in the wrong place. What about a lot of guys that spend time on internet looking at pornography? And they know it's bad for them. They know it's bad for the marriage or future wife. They know. They know it's bad. But they do. Anyway, why? Comfort fills a void. Why do others turn to alcohol? Well, they know, they, they can see their life is falling apart, and yet it's like they still keep going back to the bottle. Why? It fills the hole. They're looking for joy. Why do others turn to food? Comfort food, as we call it. Now, salad is never comfort food. Comfort food always tastes really good and has way too many calories. It's not good for us, and yet we turn to it. Why? To fill a void. There's a hole. Looking for joy. We turn, the list can go on, but I'll stop there. Of things that we turn to that we know are destroying our lives, and we still go back like a dog going back to its vomit. And we go back and we go back, and the reason is because we have been made to look 
for joy. God wants us happy. He wants us to find pleasure. But he, know, he knows that we won't find it in those places. Listen, the pursuit of pleasure is not optional for you. The pursuit of pleasure is essential. We must seek pleasure. God made us to seek pleasure. And again, John Piper says it best when he says, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. And Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life, not death. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. So in God's presence, there's joy. In God's presence, there's happiness. There's joy. There's pleasures. God wants us to have life and to have it at its fullest. He wants you happy. God wants you to have joy, to have pleasure. But the only source of true joy is Jesus. And so He wants you to turn to Him. And God gives you the best, which is Himself. He says, look, I want you to have joy. Come to Me. I'll never disappoint you. I have steadfast love for you. I'm faithful to you. I sent my son to die for you. I accept you how you are. I want to love you. And I want to change you to reflect my glory. Because the more holy you are, the more happy you're going to be. The more you experience Christ, the more joy you're going to have. And so he wants you to be happy. So again, the pursuit of pleasure is essential. But we must find it in Christ alone. God made us to know Him and to enjoy Him forever. So we must focus on Him. When we look for joy in self-centered things, all we're going to find is destruction. And you won't find joy there. Maybe fleeting pleasures, but not lasting joy. Not to satisfy your soul. Verses 7 and 8 are hard-hitting. It says, evildoers are doomed to destruction forever, whereas the Lord is high forever. So he's saying those that refuse to gladly follow God are going to have destruction forever. But the Lord is on high forever. The focus here is on eternity, which is why I say the main idea of this text is that God creators enjoy Him forever. It's eternal. He wants you to have joy with Him Forever, but he's the only source of everlasting joy. God gives the best himself. So second question, let's answer it. What if I refuse to enjoy God? And you can. You have that free will. If you choose to, to enjoy God, what will happen? You will not experience lasting joy. You won't. You, you'll be stuck looking for joy in things that will not satisfy you. Third question, as we wrap things up. What is the result of truly enjoying God? We're going through this text. So what is the result? What, what, if, what if I truly enjoy God? What does my life look like? What is the result? Verses 10 and 11 says, But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. A horn symbolized power. It says wild ox, strong beasts of labor. 
So he says, we'll have power for what? He says, my eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. And so able to have victory, to overcome the temptations, to overcome the sin that, that, that would entangle us. And so all summer we've talked about overcoming emotions like loneliness and depression and discouragement. We've been talking about that all summer. We can have victory. We can if it's through Christ. And it's a battle for your mind. You must focus your thoughts on God and on your need for His mercy. Remember the cross every day where your redemption was purchased. So are you struggling with things like anger or resentment or maybe anxiety? Things that we've covered in this series. The the solution as we wrap up today, the solution is to focus on Jesus and his gospel of grace. That's where the victory lies. So what, what do we do? Well, we, we confess our sin to God and to someone else, to someone that you can trust. Be transparent. Be vulnerable with someone that won't go tell everyone. Someone that you trust, that loves you. Be honest about your struggle. Don't hide it. Confess it. Be transparent. And feed your soul from this. Every day, you feed your soul. You meditate on it. You spend time in God's presence every day. And it says you'll have like fresh oil poured on you. This is, this is a refreshing. God wants to refresh you with oil. Last few verses, as our time is already up. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age, and they're ever full of sap and green. So we read earlier in the psalm that the evil who don't love God, they appear to sprout quickly, but then they lead to destruction. It says here there's a contrast. There's an eternal blessing for those that are enjoying God. It says we will be planted in the courts of God. His court was in the temple where you have his presence. And so what you have here is that we'll be planted in the presence of God For eternity, this lets us have joy in the face of miserable circumstances. Even if your situation is terrible. I mean, I don't know what you're going through. I know some of you, but not everyone in this room. I mean, if you have horrible things going on right now, you can still have joy. You can. Verse 15 reminds us as we close, to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. We're enjoying God. The natural response is to declare it, to make it known that he is holy, that he is our rock, he is stable. He's our comfort, our joy, he's our everything. So what is the result of truly enjoying God, as we close here? Everlasting gladness. Everlasting. Be sustained on this side of heaven and for eternity beyond. This magnificent poem, this psalm, shows us God's glory in creation and also in redemption. And it points to what Jesus did on the cross, that we can have glad hearts. If you're here this morning and you have never come to an understanding that you are a sinner, but today maybe for the first time you believe that you really have sinned, and these verses describe you not enjoying God, you can repent of that sin and place your complete trust in Jesus alone. You can. 
And if you will repent in with all of your heart, really trust in Jesus, he will send his spirit to be inside of you. And you'll experience his presence and everlasting joy and pleasures forevermore. It won't change all your problems, but you'll have him with you. And he'll change your soul. He'll change everything. And you have glad hearts. Let's do this together. You pray with me. Our holy God, we praise you for the joy of gathering in your name, of looking at your word, of being challenged and yet encouraged by it. I pray that you would be with anyone in this room that is currently grappling with these truths. If a believer that has been ensnared by sin, may he or she repent, confess that, and experience this refreshing. Anyone in this room, Father, who has never truly trusted in you, may they even in this moment turn away from their sin and place a complete hope in you alone to experience your transformation. We praise you for you are worthy. All morning, all evening, we want to just praise you. For you satisfy us. And we thank you for having loved us. And now we can love you too. We pray these things in the powerful, beautiful name of our King Jesus.